Amen. Thank you, Jessica. It's an appropriate song, even though we didn't hear the words, we know the words. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and we will have an opportunity to do that this morning. That will tie into part of our text uh, this morning. But it's good to see everybody here. I appreciate y'all paddling out here to New Covenant Fellowship this morning. Light all this rain. Well, as you know, one of the things that we like to do here is study, uh, immerse ourselves in Holy Scripture by studying whole books, complete books or books in their entirety. And that's what we've been doing, at least uh, before I came here, but especially since I came here in the last 12 years. So in addition to some pretty comprehensive topical studies that we've looked at, we've looked at books of the Bible. I'm probably missing a few, but we've looked at Genesis and Ezra and Judges and We've looked at Hebrews and Ephesians and Colossians and Acts. And um, today we're going to look at Nehemiah. We're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 6. Did I say Ezra? Okay, Ezra. We've looked at Ezra. We're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 6, verses 15 through 19. You'll also know, if you've been here for any length of time, nine times out of ten before I launch into the... The current sermon, I usually just quickly rehash the sermon before because we read books of the Bible and study books as a whole. I do that for two reasons. One is just continuity. That is that every message has a context. And so it helps us remember where we've been. And another reason for just rehashing things quickly is a practical reason. And that is sometimes we just miss things. Sometimes we get distracted. So I'll start talking about a wall and somebody said, wall, what wall? What's that got to do with the Bible? And I get it. So sometimes we miss things. So I like to just back up a little bit. And in the beginning of this chapter, we looked at the schemes of the enemy and how to combat those because Nehemiah faced some hardship in the beginning of this chapter. And three things emerged or three weapons, if you will, on how Nehemiah successfully combated the enemy. And one of the things we learned that he did was that he stayed focused. He didn't allow himself to be distracted from the Lord's work, from that which God called him to. And another thing that uh, he did was he just learned to to stand on the truth. Lies were made up about him and and trickery and schemes. And so he learned to speak the truth and stand on the truth. And then lastly, just through uh, applying spiritual discernment, the enemy tried to trick him. Through false prophecy at a time when he could have really used some good, solid spiritual encouragement. Instead of that, he gets spiritual deception. And that is a false prophet prophet saying, thus saith the Lord, Nehemiah, here's what you need to do with your life. And through spiritual discernment, he was able to, to know that this was not from God. So his knowledge of the word and just his prayer life and staying in tune with God. And so these are just three ways that we can also have victory over the enemy. And I think it's safe to say in the first part of this chapter, we've learned that Nehemiah was really had to be worn out by about this time. I mean, he'd been going full steam ahead. He had been attacked from every angle that you can be attacked, faced numerous hardships. So he's a he's a war torn saint, I think, at this time. But his steadfastness saw him through his long line of. Of obedience in the same direction enabled him to stay on his wall and continue to minister to the Lord. And it paid off. 
That long line of obedience paid off. And that's what we get to read about in most of the text this morning in verses 15 through 19. Let me read those verses for you. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem. For they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him, because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Ara, and his son Jehuhanan had taken the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, as his wife. Also, they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him. And Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. Well, we'll look again at Tobiah towards the end of this message. But for now, we want to concentrate on this tremendous achievement, what I'll call an achievement of grace. And that is that the wall is complete. Even the gates are set. The holes in the wall are filled. And the people are behind the walls and they're safe. So there you have it. After approximately 140 years of these walls laying in ruins, they have been put back together. Rock upon rock. And the city of God, the city of Jerusalem, is once again intact. And these words are written by Nehemiah himself, one of the authors of this book, but also one who participated in this great uh, arduous labor of building this wall. One who kind of spearheaded the whole thing. And you can imagine that from Nehemiah to write these words in this book must have been so refreshing to him, so, so satisfying to him. And, and Nehemiah, you'll recall, is one of the unique books in that it's written more in the first person. It's almost like Nehemiah's personal journal. He just throws things in there and he's He's recounting redemptive history under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but from his perspective. And he gets to write the words, not only wall, um, work on the wall, but write the words after countless hardship. After emotional and spiritual and physical and even financial hardship, he gets to say in his own journal, but also to all those that will read. It's finished. The wall is complete. I would imagine if you think about this, this time in history, especially for Nehemiah, you know, Nehemiah, of course, came from Persia and uh, he was in the high courts of the king Artaxerxes and he was a cupbearer, which is almost like a high political position really to, to have. He wasn't just grunt work. Uh, he was in tight with the king. The, ki the king relied on him for advice and things. But as a cupbearer, you can imagine that his job got pretty tense at times because he had to taste the food or, or the king's drinks before the king would taste them to make sure they weren't poisoned. I would imagine that could get a little tense at times. I'm sure he kept a close eye on things, on the cooks and everything else, since he was the one that had to taste the food. He didn't just do things blindly. There was, a, there was order to it, but I'm sure it got tense. But back in the motherland, considering all that he has faced up until this point before he could write those words, I'm sure that this 
he would probably say, yeah, this these last couple months have been the hardest months I've ever faced in my life. The things that he had to overcome. But many times it's the things that we work the hardest for, the things that we put forth the most effort or require the most sacrifice that are the most satisfying. I've heard it say that if it's not worth working for, it's not worth having. And there's just this idea of a built in sense of satisfaction for a job well done, a job that didn't come easy, a job, in fact, that was quite difficult. I don't know about you, but I absolutely love the, the, the feeling. And unfortunately, it's brief for me, but because then I just move on. But I love the, the feeling of finishing something. I'm a I'm a task guy and I love the feeling of taking my pen and just drawing a line through that task that has been there so long on my list. And it's it's done. I don't have to think about it anymore. I don't have to look at, at this anymore. And that's kind of what Nehemiah gets to do as he writes these words, this, this project. It's. I mean, it's not just personal satisfaction, but now approximately 50,000 people can come within these walls because they're finished. Now, Israel can move on in rebuilding their lives of worship because it's finished. And it happened in 52 exhausting days, 52 days of grueling labor and harassment, mistreatment. And so what does Nehemiah say after all of this history that goes into this and all these days? He just says, uh, wall's finished. No details like sometimes we want. He doesn't share his feelings. He's just short and to the point. It's the guy's version of what happened. Yeah, wall's finished. You know, guys, just that's just the way we communicate. It's the dude version. Uh, we, we're just kind of bottom line people. Details aren't even that important to us. We don't recognize them a lot of times. And um, so we get the dude version of all that. Yeah, the wall's finished. Now, it's, uh, what else is there to say? Let's move on. Uh, women have a different way of communicating. They, um, they love details. Absolutely that can't hardly speak without adding lots and lots of details. And it's just, it's fine. It's just different angles. It's different approaches to, to uh, conveying a message. Um, so one of my favorite parts of my job is getting to see the newborn babies in the church. I love to go see the newborn babies. And so I'll, most time Lisa tries to come with me, but she's not always able to do that. So if I go... See one on my own and I get back. How did it go? Oh, it went great. Little guy is cute as a button. Everybody's doing great. I got to hold him and you didn't. What else is there to say? I mean, that's that's exactly what happened. Play by play. It was wonderful. That's not enough. Then come the details. Well, what color does he have hair? What color is it? Is it straight or is it curly? Who does he look like? What does brothers and sisters think of it? How's mom doing it? Was it natural? Was there an epidural? Was dad there? Did he pass out? What color were the curtains in the in the room? How much did he weigh? How long was he? You know, all these things. I didn't ask these questions. 
But you know, all, all ten toes there, all ten fingers there. I mean, they, she just, that, that was just not complete. The dude version wasn't complete. The, um, maybe this is one of the reasons that all the authors of Scripture were men. <laughs> just to give us a fighting chance to read through the Bible in a year. I don't know. It's just an idea. I, I, no, I don't mean any harm by that. So anyway, whatever. Nehemiah, before I get myself in trouble, it's just like he... he you just almost can see him. You know, the wall's done. He, he writes and he's like he tightens the belt in his robe and spits in the ground and just moves on. It's just, it's done. But this was no small task. I mean, seriously, this was absolutely no small task. People had tried to do this for approximately 140 years. It was shot down to different projects that they had going and the attempts. And he does it in 52 days. And that's why Nehemiah, by the Jewish population, is revealed as one of the greatest heroes of the Bible because of what he accomplished. He did what nobody else could do. And, of course, you think, well, how did he do it? We've already looked at how. He stayed focused. He, well, he, he arrives on the job site in the city. He is, he's not impulsive. He assesses the situation before he just starts barking orders. He sees what needs to be done. He calculates the best way to do it with what he has to work with. And then he applies it. He begins to offer the leadership to it. So he plans. And then, of course, he prays the whole time. And then he plods, what we might call plod. That's the steadfastness. He just keeps going. He keeps going. He refuses to come down. He refuses to stop the mission that he has. I mean, this is what we all do. It's just a principle of life. If we want to really accomplish something, if we want to achieve something, isn't this what we all have to do? The things that we have achieved in our lives, this is what we've done. We have to make up our minds that this is something I want to do. And then it becomes our life. Our, our, our schedule revolves around it. We have to make changes in our lives in order to make sure it's done. We have to avoid distractions. And we have to, of course, if we're believers... Keep praying it through and, and plotting that, that steadfastness. We just stick with it and stick with it. That's how we make uh, academic achievements. That's how most of us got through school. You just had to keep sticking at it and you come up with a plan. That's, that's what our marriages should look like and our ministries should look like. It becomes a priority. This is a priority in my life. I want to have this kind of relationship. I want to serve God in this way. And so we have to plan our lives around that priority. Otherwise, the secondary things will eat away at it and it will not be accomplished. So we, we purpose not to lose sight of it and let it slip. Kind of that long line of obedience. And because of that long line of obedience, Nehemiah is able to write these words. Now, he's very blessed in the sense that not only did he begin the process, but he also Got to finish it. You know, there's a lot of tasks that God calls us to that we don't get to see the final result. Moses didn't. We were reminded in Hebrews chapter 11, Sunday school this morning, that there were lots of powerful servants of God that did not see the promise. Of course, talking about the promise of the Messiah. They never got to see it. They worked hard for it. They risked their lives to continue Obeying God in this plan of redemptive history, but they never saw what God, the big picture of what God 
had in mind of the Messiah in their lifetime. They didn't see the fulfillment of that promise. So we don't all get to, to see the fruit of our labors, but Nehemiah did. Achieving things for God. Having goals. I'm sure we have goals here. I'm sure you have goals. How are your achievements coming? Things that you have determined. Yep, this is what God wants me to do with my life. Or maybe in this season of my life. Well, we certainly have much to do as God's children. I mean, we have been culturally commissioned by God to take dominion and be fruitful. And then we've been spiritually commissioned by Christ to go into all the world and make disciples. So we have lots of projects to work on as believers. When you come into the family of God, it's like God gives you these gifts. It's like he puts this bib overalls on you and he says, all right, get to work. We're going to work on your heart, We're going to work on you and, 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 and you're going to work in others. So we work on yourself. So there's projects that we have. I guess maybe some of us have lists of things that we need to achieve personally and for the Lord. Like I said, I'm a list guy, so I have lists all over my desk. I have lists of things that I need to do in a couple years. I have lists of things that I should have done a couple years ago, but I have lots of lists and I love the feeling of achievement crossing those things out and especially if it's something that I knew that God wanted me to do whether it was a one day thing maybe just one one moment of prayer or one day of prayer or a long drawn out thing like reading the the Bible in a year or some kind of achievement I love crossing those off the list because I mean as believers we want to we're here to honor God. We're here to use our entire lives, our whole breath, our ever, all of our energy is to go into glorifying God. And so what a wonderful thing, a satisfying thing it is to be able to say, God asked me to do this and I did it. I achieved this. You know, God really, um, I don't think it's a stretch to say that God requires that of us to be able to cross some things off our list because God God is a fruit-bearing type God. He invests in us greatly. I mean, he gave his son to us. And there's this expectation that God's going to work in our lives because he wants, he wants to use us in this world. So there's an expectation to bear fruit that lingers over our heads as, as believers. I'm thinking of that time when Jesus, to teach his disciples about this principle, comes upon the fig tree... That was designed by God, created by God to bear fruit, figs. It, it, it had this specific design and it hadn't done that. And Jesus, it, you know, it seems so harsh to us, but he curses it, just withers. The idea is that that tree had a specific design and it's had its opportunity to do what it was supposed to do and it didn't do it. And then I'm reminded of the story about the talents and the master that gave uh, three servants that different amounts of talents and the outcome of that. And here's Jesus teaching this parable. And the one that that was aggressive with what God had invested in him, or the master had invested in him, he was highly praised and magnified or multiplied these gifts and talents that worth in that investment. Even at risk, which is a Powerful thing to think about in that parable that that even though he risked, he aggressively went after and risked it. 
he was praised as opposed to the one that just kept it and guarded it, was scared to do anything with it and lost it. So there's this expectation that God has for us that we're going to be setting goals. We're going to be reading his word. We're going to be understanding what he is saying to us personally and corporately. And we're going to be chipping away at these things and working at these things and bearing fruit for God. I mean, work is so important. And working for God is, can be so satisfying, even in the midst of sacrifices. If you look at the world and you look at sections of humanity, say, that are jobless, they want to work, but they can't or they just don't work. Man, it's, it's, it's a terrible situation. It's not a good place to be in because people lose their meaning and their purpose because in them is this desire to achieve, to take dominion. That's why we were created. So Nehemiah says it's finished. It's done. Sure, those words sound familiar. You've heard them before. It is finished. And they come from our Lord in a similar mission or at least approach to a mission. Jesus came with the commission from God or the Holy Trinity, but the mission to redeem fallen man. And he came and it was it was a very well calculated plan. I mean, he had it all worked out from start to finish, from from the incarnation to the cross. Everything that he needed to do so that he could accomplish this mission and a great sacrifice. He he was steadfast. He, he kept going. The mockings didn't stop him. The physical pain, the spiritual oppression didn't stop him. The financial hardships. He was poverty stricken. That didn't stop him. He stayed on the course. He stayed focused. And one of his precious last words as he hung on the cross, what's, what could possibly going, be going through his mind when he's about to leave this world and go into the next and face death, something he's never faced? What could he dare think about? It is finished. He's thinking about the mission. He's saying, in essence, he's rehearsing in his mind, in part, I came to do this. And I'm doing it. I've done it. And he says it's finished. He's laid down his life. And, of course, three days later, he rose from the dead and he conquered death and he conquered sin and he conquered Satan. He, He completed that which he came to do. And that's good news. And I love how the Apostle Paul uses this this ability of Christ, the steadfastness of Christ to 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 have a mission, to take on a mission and complete it. He uses that to encourage us, the saints in Philippians. He he tells the church in Philippians in verse six, I'm sure of this. That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So now we're reminded that not only did he refinish the the work of redemption on the cross, but he is still at work in us. And now we're the wall or we're the project. And when we confess Christ as Lord, he immediately comes in, he sets up shop and he goes to work on us. So we're in progress. We're a work in progress. We're We're a working zone or a construction site. Piece of work. You've heard the expression, man, he's a piece of work. 
mean and what a character. We're, we're God's little characters. We're God's piece of work that he is, he is uh, laboring over. And because Christ finishes everything that he starts, the Apostle Paul is saying he's going to complete the work that he has started in you, which means that none of us will be half-paked. None of us will be just half-sanctified or half-transformed. It means when Christ is finished, we will be 100% changed, 100% transformed, 100% prepared for the next world to come because he completes his mission. What an awesome God. What a hardworking God. What a servant God he is. So earlier, Nehemiah prayed. In the midst of his great opposition. Lord strengthen my arms. He was feeling weak. Tired. God strengthen my arms. You know. God answered that prayer right. Not in the way we might have thought. But the work's finished. Walls built. Somehow God did it. He, he put the strength. In Nehemiah to get. The job done. Sometimes the difference between a complete and an incomplete. Is a prayer. Because we get to that point where what else are you going to do? We have to choose. Are we going to pray this through? And in Scripture, even this morning in Sunday school, we were reminded in that passage in Hebrews 11 that it, it's, it's in our weakness that He is strong. I still don't get that. I hate feeling weak. I don't like it at all. And yet, Scripture's saying it's in your weakness that you're going to be strong. Still struggling with that, but it's the truth. And I think in Nehemiah's weakness, God made him strong. And so by God's grace, we'll achieve the things that God wants us to achieve. We'll see it through. And we're a busy people. We have lots of projects on our list. I mean, as believers, as as individuals, as a people who have been called by God to, to live before him individually and corporately. I mean, what are, what are the kind of things that we're striving to do here? Well, one thing that we've always been striving to do at New Covenant Fellowship is to, is to raise godly families, to, to, to present, to be and to present to the world what a scriptural family looks like. So we strive as husbands to be the leaders that God has asked us to be. And we strive as wives to be that compliment that we read about to our, to be that help meet that we read about in scripture and we strive as parents to to keep our kids instructed in God's word and to find that that balance that seems impossible between holding on and letting go and holding on and letting go we're striving we work we are working hard at trying to be this kind of people and we're working hard at trying to to be a light to the world to to make sure the community knows that we exist, that we love them, and that if they come here, we also work hard at trying to present God's truth. I mean, if you sit in Sunday school and and um, and in the messages that we we try to to proclaim the excellencies of Christ and to say true to the word of God and not get caught up in the other things and the other methods and styles that may be gaining popularity in the world. These are hard things to do. What we're doing here, trying to be families of God and also 
striving to be a church that's reliable and faithful to the Lord in the midst of a crumbling culture. In the midst of, quite frankly, churches are losing numbers dramatically in, in the United States. It's on a decline. We have this hard work of, of not just maintaining what we have, but thriving. I mean, what we're trying to do here and, and the relationships that we're trying to forge with one another and making these sacrifices to say no to self and yes to God, all these things, these projects that we have on our plate, they're hard. But we can achieve them through the strength of God. In our weakness, we can achieve these things and we can be the people that God wants us to be. We strive. We strive to use our money to glorify him. We strive to put missionaries out in the field. We strive to keep missionaries out in the field with our finances, with our giving. I mean, these are tough choices. We make tough choices every day to try to be what God wants us to be, to try to walk worthy of the calling that God has on our lives. And as as God's grace is invested in us and poured through us, then we will achieve these things. We have that hope of completion. We want to remain on the wall. You know, by remaining on that wall, as we'll see in the next point, it has the potential to affect others that just happen to be looking in. We look and see this in verse 16. When all our enemies heard of it, the wall is complete. All the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that the work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Two things I want to point out about this first, and they both have to do with humility, I guess, on both sides of the fence, you might say. Humility with God's people and humility that was um, imposed upon even the enemies of God. But look what Nehemiah is saying here. The work had been accomplished. How? With the help of our God. You know, that's a humble statement. Because from an earthly perspective, who, who did all the work? I mean, who was up late at night? Who's, who's making all the sacrifices and, and, and doing all the scheduling and all the encouragement and the work and the sweating? Well, it's Nehemiah. I mean, he came up with a great plan. He's an impressive guy. He did what no one else was able to do, and he did it in 52 days. And yet he's not, he's not hiring himself out on the lecture circuit and writing books, Three Steps to Success. He's saying, he, he's not moving himself away as if, man, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm something. He stays connected to God. He sees the reality of the situation. That is, yeah, what we did was phenomenal. And guess how we did it? With the help of God. He's delighting in the the work of God instead of delighting in his own progress. When we start delighting in our own progress to the point where we forget that God actually was the one that brought us there. And we and we we separate ourselves and become independent. Now we can do it on our own. Oh, man, that's when bad things happen every time. Every time. You know, when our marriages happen to be strong, give God the credit. Don't look down at other marriages. When our kids happen to turn out, wow, I don't know what happened, but man, they turn out great. Give the credit to God. I mean, delight in God's glory, not, well, let me tell you how to do it. You know, you have to have them up at this time and they need to memorize this scripture. And 
It's delighting in the glories of God, giving the credit to God. And we've said this before, but it's worth mentioning again. It's not always the things, the big sins that hinder us in our walk. Sometimes it's the great accomplishments. It's the great achievements that trip us up because we we lose touch with how life really, really works. We lose sight that it's been God influencing us and we can't always figure it out and take a picture of it and show it to each other and Polaroid, but it's God, the visible God working. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. If we're arrogant, we're being opposed. In Proverbs, we're learning that wisdom is to stay in the realm and the boundary of how life really is, reality. And if we start thinking of ourselves unrealistically like we're more special than we really are, it's going to catch up to us. We're going to make some bad decisions. So just recently, as a few examples, um, if you watch the news uh, there's there's this CEO of, I think, a peanut butter company. And he's going to do 28 years of jail time. Very successful man who built this company up. Because he knowingly sold, I think it was peanut butter, not peanuts, sold peanut butter that was poison, tainted with food poison, had salmonella. And people didn't just get sick. They died. I think it was nine people died. And he's being indicted. He's facing jail. And you think about now, because he knew. That's why he's guilty. He knew these decisions that he had to make at this some some point of time in his life. He he knows that the shipment is not good for people. So do I do what's good for the company or for me? My own pocket, do I good, do what's good for the people? And he made the wrong decision. He, he got disconnected with reality. And he faced the consequences. Gosh, these kind of things are happening all around us. And then the, the, uh, another thing I read, which just blows my mind, is about Volkswagen. If you've read that, those rascals, that company, heads are going to roll. They haven't rolled yet, but they're going to. Because they, they cheated on their emissions Module, some kind of part in their car that's supposed to pass tests so that they can tout themselves as being really green. It turns out that they designed it in a way to trick the computers, to trick the testing system that says, yep, that car is good. So for all these years, they've been having this reputation and they're supposed to have passed these inspections. Come to find out they're not what they're supposed to be, these cars. So I don't know what's going to happen to these cars or Volkswagen, but... The, the, the CEO, somebody along the line, was faced with this decision. This is, this is not an accident, by the way. He's faced with this decision. You know, the, the, the well-being of the company, my achievements, my success, versus doing things right. There's this compromise. It's, it's an arrogance. What? It's an arrogance. They're no longer in touch with reality when these kind of things happen. Not wise thinking. And I'm sure these people are doing some soul searching now. Arrogance is a work destroyer. Man, humility pours the pitcher of grace. This pours God's grace like a pitcher. He says that. He gives grace to the humble. So there's humility on Nehemiah's part. But then there's humility 
this sense of humility that comes on the part of Nehemiah's enemies says they were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem. They perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. So this great work that they tried their best to stop and didn't open their eyes to a power that's greater than theirs. It opened it. It made them come to grips with the fact that's a God thing. I mean, I tried to stop these people. Everything within our powers, we we employed every weapon we had and we. We were not successful. They were the walls there. How did this happen? It, it's a God thing. And so th- this steadfastness of God's people often opens the eyes even to our enemies. That God is at work here. And when, when people begin to realize it's like they, they lost the wind in their sail. Um, they, they scaled down in their own eyes. Man, I'm not as powerful as I thought. When you see that God's at work, it's, it changes people's perspective. And so now they're, they're the ones that are kind of worried. They're the ones that are scared. Another answer to Nehemiah's, one of Nehemiah's imprecatory prayers. And back in verse 14, when he said, he shot one up to God. Lord, remember uh, to buy and sell by Sam Ballot. Oh, my God, according to these things that they did and also the prophetesses and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. Now, who's afraid? Isn't that interesting? It's right. It's an answer to an imprecatory prayer. In other words, all these feelings that that we've been experienced, we've been mocked. We've been frightened. We've been threatened. We've been ridiculed. May, may our enemies feel the things that they're making us feel. And that's exactly what's happening right here. These terrible feelings of powerlessness and, and humiliation, being frightened and being bullied. You know, I want to jump in and say, who's your daddy now? But then that would be arrogant. We can't, we can't do that. Nehemiah doesn't do it. But you know, when, we're realize, when you realize when you're dealing with something that's bigger than you and greater than you, it's no longer on your level. It's out of your league. And these people realize that. And so they fall in their own esteem. Actually, they fall back where they should have been the whole time. They should have realized we're trying to oppose the one and only true God and never started it in the first place. But you know how sin works. So they have these feelings that they hadn't had for a while. Inferiority and futility and, and all this power that they were thinking and, and using and as they... They threw their insults at these people and felt so good about it. It's like they just come back empty now. There's nothing there. They're not doing any good. And eventually they just stop. And then they become afraid. Well, if we're at busy with the work of God, you know we're going to have our critics. You know we're going to have those that want to put us down every chance they get. They want to mock us. They want to make fun of us. They, want, they don't want to recognize any God-given accomplishment. They just want to make fun of us. And being countercultural, living according to Scripture, does clash with the world's ways. And people will sometimes vehemently disagree with the things that we do in our lives. And they may see us as uh, Bible-believing conservatives or who knows what and snub their nose at us. They might see us trying to live differently and 
live chastely and purely and not sleep around and not cheat on our taxes or other things and, and just think less of us instead of think more of us. We might even get some nasty emails or comments. But that's what happened in Nehemiah's day. And they stayed on the wall and eventually the critics became silent, except for Tobiah. We'll get to him lastly. Critics became silent. So I think we can learn that if we stick this, if we stick with it, being the light of the world, living the Christian life, immersing ourselves in God's word, our prayer life, depending on him and his grace in our life. If we just keep chipping away, we keep plodding along. There's a good chance that we might have an opportunity to change the way that people look at us. We have an opportunity to affect those that we are surrounded with, even sometimes our critics that put pressure on us to come down off the wall. This is a time when really, you know, Nehemiah, here he is just doing God's work. If anything, he should be encouraged and he's discouraged. You ever have anybody in your life, maybe friend, family, who knows, that just discourages the work of God in your life? Doesn't give you any credit for it. Just waiting for you to fall because they're convinced it's a fad. I know there's lots of people when I was transformed by God, they thought it was a fad. Eh, he'll be back to his old, old ways. Well, yeah, I faltered for a little while there, but then God just, mm, just gripped. And the people that have waited for me to change back, it didn't happen. And that gets people's attention when we're that consistent in the grace of God. Well, whether we silence our critics or not, we want to just keep on pressing on. Keep on living the way God wants us to live, even though our culture is headed in the opposite direction. And then lastly, the absence of grace. Here we are back with Tobiah. This guy is a pest. Verses 17 through 19. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him. It gets confusing. He's, uh, he's Jewish by, he's tied to the family through marriages and so forth. And also, verse 19, they spoke of his good deeds in my presence, reported my words to him. And Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. There you have it. Remember the fear thing? It's the tactic of the enemy. The enemy wants to do, he's using, so, so Tobiah sending the letters, but Satan's sending Tobiah. He's just behind all these kind of things. The enemy wants us to live a life immersed in fear. And God goes to great lengths to help his people understand, no, I'm the sovereign God. I have you in, in the palm of my hand. I, I work everything. I run everything. And Jesus taught his disciples, you know, the, the birds of the air have food to eat. How much more are you? And so God goes to great lengths to try to help us feel the security that he has for us. And yet the enemy wants us to just live our lives in a ball of knots and be anxious about everything. Be afraid of everything, our jobs and our health and our looks and, and, and our friends. And are we going to be alone and are we going to fail at this? Should I even try it? He wants us to, to live lives that are balled up in knots. And if the medications that a lot of people are on these days are any indication, he's doing a pretty good job at it because we are one anxious, depressed, tormented culture. 
So Satan cries, fear and God cries, fear not. Well, Tobias using these letters, and of course, they're open letters, and he's trying to belittle Nehemiah, and he's actually in. He's got a foothold in this because basically he's Jewish. He's married into the family, don't know exactly how that all works, but he has friends even on the other side of the fence uh, with Nehemiah. He's one of those guys who's kind of claims to be Jewish and claims to be on their side and wants to exert influence, but he's not really on their side. It might be somebody today like is on the church membership role, but they never come to church. But when you have a meeting, they show up and they absolutely insist on this, this and that. It's an enemy. Actually, we have today, we have people that make that so-called Christians that make a good living doing what? Belittling God, writing books about how Jesus isn't divine, belittling the church and the things of God. They actually make a good living on it, so-called Christians. So rather than like the rest of the people that see this wall and they see it as a thing of God and they back off, not Tobiah. But by the end of Nehemiah, we're all going to want to poke, put our eye, I mean, put our finger in Tobiah's eye because he just is a constant pest to the things of God. So unfortunately, sometimes God allows these kind of people into our lives, critics, those that belittle us, those that put us down and they won't go away and they make our lives miserable. Don't give us any credit. And we wish, we wish that they would see Christ in us, but they don't. They're just against us. By the way, don't be a Tobiah. <laughs> don't be a Tobiah. Christians need encouragement. That's why we are constantly told in the New Testament, build one another, build one another up. Where will you ever find tear one another down? You won't see it. It's not of God. Because we need to constantly be built up, especially new Christians. The last thing they need in their life is a critic. They need encouragement. You know, it happens sometimes, these kind of people, these Tobias. And boy, if you have a Tobias in your life, I am sorry for you. I am sorry if there's somebody there, whether they're close to you or not, and they're just constantly weighting you down, not giving you any credit for any achievement or accomplishment in Christ. Waiting for you to fall. I am so sorry. That's a terrible place to be. But be secure in God. Be secure in the one that started a good work in you and will bring it to completion. As we were reminded, I, I believe just last week, 1 John 4, 4. He who is in you is what? Greater than he who is in the world. That verse, you can get a lot of mileage out of that verse. I know I did as a young Christian. And let's be careful because the tendency of the heart when we have Tobias in our life is to grow cold and callous and bitter. Say no to that. Stay kind hearted like Christ is to us. Well, we're in the house of God here and the spirit of God is with us. And I hope that you're encouraged that you've been with the saints of God this morning. I hope God's word is building you up and is there to guide you and lead you for what God has for you this week. Don't lose heart. Hebrews 12, 3. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Trust in the Lord. Draw your strength from the Lord. Be stout-hearted. Let me close with this verse in Hebrews 12. Therefore, lift your drooping hands. 
and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. By God's grace, we're going to stay on our wall. By God's grace, we're going to stay in these ministries and these roles and the responsibilities that God had called, has called us to individually and corporately. And by God's grace, we'll do it in such a way that others, other lives will be affected. And that eyes that were once closed will be open to the power of the living God. May God bless the preaching of his word.